0: everyone it's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian Lindsay hansen park here thanking you for listening to the year of polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast this series might be coming to a close soon but i have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come if you haven't supported the podcast yet please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening.
1: Two, three, go.
0: Feminist, Mormon, housewives. Feminist. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And before we get started, I just want to make a few announcements. I will be taping my last episode. We're going to 100 episodes and I will be taping my last episode, episode 100 at RIT and Vision in Provo, Utah at the end of June. So uh, you can watch this podcast for more information or if you're a friend on Facebook, uh, you can find out more information. And if you're listening after June of 2015, then you can access the episode online because it will be online. Uh, We're winding down and we're coming to our last episode. I will also be at the Sunstone Summer Symposium. Uh, I work for Sunstone as my day job, and I'm helping plan the Summer Symposium, which is a great big uh, party where anyone that's interested in Mormonism or the Restoration can come together. So we have people from the Community of Christ or the RLDS. We have a lot of fundamentalists come from different groups. We have a lot of Mormons, ex-Mormons, Mormon scholars, uh, never-Mormon scholars. Everybody comes together together at the end of July, and we just get together and have this big, fun conference, and we all meet each other and eat food and listen to a lot of amazing presentations about Mormonism. It's it's great fun, and I will be talking there with Trevor Jeffs, who we've had on this podcast, Warren Jeffs' nephew, and Kristen Decker, who has left the AUB, and um, a few other people. We're going to be talking about the fundamentalist Mormon mind. So if you want to see us, make sure you register. You can go to Sunstone. Dot .org and again if you're listening after July of 2015 then uh, you can listen to it online at sunsun.org. Okay, so let's get into the podcast. This podcast I have been sitting on for a long long time. I actually did this interview months ago and I am so disappointed because I'm talking with one of the greatest scholars on modern polygamy and uh, the audio was terrible. I was talking to um, anthropologist Janet Benyon in her office in Vermont, and her her signal was so bad. And we tried to work it out on Skype, and there you just it's irrecoverable. You can't you can't even hear anything she's saying on Skype. So we moved it to the telephone interview. So I do have the telephone portion of the interview. My audio is not great on that, but uh, we were able to salvage a lot of the brilliant things she was saying. So I've struggled with this interview, what to do with it. Uh, it's given me a lot of anxiety thinking about how to salvage it. And of course, re recordings not, re-recording's not an option because Dr. Benyon is very, very busy. So what I've done is I've consolidated a lot of her research, and I'm going to cover some of that, some of the things that we were not able to recover in the audio, and then you can hear the interview with her. In her paper, Media, Gender, and Law in Contemporary Mormon Polygamy, anthropologist Janet Benyon says, quote, the discourse about polygamy's viability came to a head on April 3rd, 2008, when authorities raided the yearning for Zion Ranch in El Dorado, Texas, the largest child w- welfare operation in Texas history. Six weeks later, the California Supreme Court issued a-, a historic decision in favor of same-sex marriage, a decision that informs legislation for all alternative marriages. Two years later, in 2010, TLC's reality series Sister Wives, joined HBO's fictional series Big Love in delivering nightly drama sympathetic to polygamists to to a combined audience of more than 4 million people weekly. That same year, a trial in Canada tested the constitutionality of the polygamy ban as laid out in Section 293 of the Criminal Code, finally determining in November of 2011 that plural marriage should remain a crime. These recent events call into question the viability of plural marriage, yet provide very little assistance in addressing this viability. Even the Canadian trial was unhelpful, filled with lopsided analysis of the evils of polygamy in the face of numerous testimonies to the contrary. The news media is generally devoted to the irreparable harm polygamy causes to women and children based on glimpses of only those groups that can contract child bride marriages violate welfare laws or engage in inbreeding very little attention is paid to progressive polygamists associated with independent plural families and the all red group that is unless these abusive polyforms entered primetime television recently talk shows and newspapers are parading the faces of cody brown and his four wives and brady williams of the tlc show my five wives who speaks about his move from mormonism to buddhism end quote Janet Benyon, who I've interviewed, is a professor of anthropology at Linden State College. She is the author of numerous books, among them, Polygamy on Primetime, Gender, Media, and Politics in Mormon Fundamentalism, and Desert Patriarchy, Gender Dynamics in the Chihuahua Valley. I'm going to go ahead and link to those. One thing you should know about Janet is she is one of the leading experts on modern polygamy. And not just Mormon fundamentalism, she sort of expanded her research into other polyforms. But she is very passionate about this. She's done a lot of research on how prime time and how having you know Mormon fundamentalists on TV has affected Mormon fundamentalism. Over the last 20 years, she has lived with fundamentalist families, spending a lot of time in the Alredite compound of the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana. She spent a lot of time with independent polygamists in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the LeBaron Group of Chihuahua, Mexico. She has lived and worked with 20 families, two extended polygamist families, and interviewed more than... 355 individuals about their conversion to the movement. She's talked about their living arrangements and their lifestyles. And it, it's important to note that she also has a Mormon background. She grew up in a, with a Mormon background and has polygamous ancestors. She has some strong opinions that might be hard for some Mormon women who struggle with the idea of polygamy. Um, she rejects the notion that Polygamy is uniformly abusive, anti-feminist and dysfunctional, or exists in you know only in isolated cults. She really asserts in her research that polygamy can occur in small towns and big cities stretching way beyond Mormonism. Um, and she does a lot of studying polygamy in non-Mormon Christian and Muslim communities. And she also wants to point out that informal polygamy is much more com- common in America than fundamentalism is. So there are all sorts of poly relationships in America that aren't tied to Mormon fundamentalism. Talking to Janet, she even goes so far as to say some polygamous wives follow a feminist track. She claims that sometimes Polygamy can support female autonomy and choice, and she likes to point to Elizabeth Joseph, who is a journalist and lawyer, or Nora Williams, who is the CEO of a family business, and Mary Brown, who we know from um, the TLC show Sister Wives, who is a social worker. She talks a lot in her research about female networks and how female networks within the groups can be empowering to women in cases where monogamy might fail women. So, for example, networks, these female networks, might provide unity when uh, men are abusive. So let's say four women are married to an abusive spouse. uh, The women can band together and have a greater chance of changing their husband's behavior. She also says, quote, Many also thrive in an environment where emotions are not suppressed and where they can escape the demands of their husband in ways that a monogamous woman cannot. Polygamy also allows women to cope with the imbalanced sex ratios, especially true among African-American Muslims who are drawn to polygamy to cope with the severe shortage of eligible men in inner cities. It is interesting that strong, capable women are actively seeking to marry into one of the most rigid forms of patriarchy, all in order to experience marriage and motherhood, and to foster friendships with other Muslim women in the black community. Dixon Speer writes that polygamy is a vehicle for fostering a womanist ethic of care for sisters. I observe the importance of vitality of this ethic amongst Mormons, co-wives, especially during the prolonged absence of husbands. Women develop a strong interdependence with each other, and in doing so create a large repertoire of domestic mechanical skills. If one wife can't fix it, another one can, is a statement I heard repeatedly. The network provides childcare for women who work and economic aid for women who can't work or who have young children to watch. It reduces the number of hours per day that women labor, contributing to increased leisure and contentment. The network also alleviates anxieties, provides a mechanism for support in times of illness, hardship, and mediates disputes, end quote. It's not all a feminist dream, however. Bennion acknowledges that in several groups, namely the Kingstons and the FLDS and LeBaron's, women are more disproportionately unhappy. She acknowledges that there is suffering that arises from jealousies, loneliness, or poverty. She says, quote, While investigating evidence of abuse amongst the four major groups, I discern five conditions that when combined with polygamy may produce a greater risk of abuse and human rights violations. The low parental investment of the father an isolated rural environment and circumscription, the absence of a strong female network, overcrowding and economic deprivation, and male supremacy. Note that these factors are not limited to or unique to polygamous family structures. It must also be noted that abuse or abandonment can sometimes lead a woman to love another woman. A handful of women, mostly converts, have confessed to me their clandestine relationships with co-wives. D. Michael Quinn refers to such intimacy between Mormon women as female homoeroticism, citing many references to women lovers and even a form of lesbian and gay club organized in 1891 by the granddaughter of Brigham Young, end quote. And uh, this is where Janet Bennion is focusing a lot of her research, and and you'll hear some of this in the interview coming up. But Bennion is very fascinated with this idea of how polygamy can foster what she calls clandestine lesbianism, where uh, women fall in love with their sister wife instead of their spouse. And it's not as uncommon as you think. And um, Benning is really interested in how these relationships can foster women in a patriarchal society and how they can actually thrive in these relationships. She is also really rigorous in her research and argues there's a huge difference between metropolitan fundamentalism and isolated groups. In her book, Desert Patriarchy, the sort of thrust of that book is um, the importance of geographical circumscription. She argues that patriarchal societies that are metropolitan or tropical or fertile are unable to, quote, achieve the same longevity and maintenance of cultural traditions as those located in deserts. So the title of her book is Desert Patriarchy. She claims that the desert's harsh physical realities reinforce other characteristics of patriarchal societies, and thus she says, quote, the desert is the mechanism by which patriarchal fundamentalism best flourishes, end quote. I find this a fascinating sort of thesis because when we do look at how, you know, Nauvoo polygamy was practiced versus how it was practiced in the Utah period, that brings some interesting um, things to light. The desert when the saints first got to Utah was extremely harsh. It was extremely isolated. And um, there was a lot of realities that these people had to force and it changed the community dynamics. We had, you know, United Orders and things like that happening because people had to really rely on cooperation to survive. Let me talk a little bit more about her book Desert Patriarchy before we get into her interview. In her book, she breaks down fundamentalist patriarchy into five categories, which she sort of mentioned before in that quote, male supremacy, And this is sort of a unique form of Anglo machismo, where men control production, reproduction, financial resources, and the group's spiritual salvation. And of course, we see this in some of the really like one man rule groups like the FLDS. This salvation is built on a patrilineal pathway to heaven that runs through him, his fathers, his grandfathers, and so on, all the way to God. We have a lot of this in LDS Mormonism as well. This results in communities that have a large pool of female mates and laborers and strict male-male competition for women, resources, and priestly authority. So this is one element of desert patriarchy. Another element would be the female networking. This system, this female network, sustains male privilege, but informally, and more importantly, is the socioeconomic foundation of society that maintains social life on a daily basis. So she claims that women form networks of emotional, economic, and spiritual ties amongst their co-wives or female friends or relatives, which she claims supplement. And at times even oppose patriarchal power. We see this in the Mormon feminist community as well. Women banding together, even if they have soft power to sort of outrule men, we've heard stories of women, women in LDS relief societies who get together and sort of, um, corner and outnumber the Bishop and, uh, sort of get what they want using their soft power. Formed in the context of strict male authority, these networks promote a sort of strange form of women's solidarity that is stronger than that which she claims, Benyon claims, exists in a more liberated female-dominated social settings where women bicker with each other rather than sort of unite against male authority. Another aspect of desert patriarchy would be Non-secular education. Each group has its own form of school. Um, there's a big emphasis in many of the groups on homeschooling. And these homeschools or individual group schools stress practical skills and forbid sometimes or sometimes largely ignore anything that does not pertain to their daily lives or theological understanding. So in extreme cases like the FLDS, when, you know, Warren Jeffs was running the Alta Academy, he, of course, begins changing history and um, they start writing their own leaders into the history and ignores some things like science and geography altogether. And in this sort of desert patriarchy, education is highly gendered and usually stops before or during high school, especially for women. And of course, we saw this in the frontier period. We saw uh, schools set up in a very similar fashion and um, women now are being more encouraged to go to high school, but not not as much. And we know this in the LDS community, how there is a disproportionate focus on men's education versus women's education, depending on people's experiences and where they grow up. There is also in a desert patriarchy, imbalanced sex ratios. So there are far more women than men of reproductive age due to several factors. One of One of them is men's dangerous work conditions, and um, they're greater exposure to the outside world. So, again, in, like in the FLDS, they will send groups of men to go on work jobs. And so they're having more exposure to the outside world than, than women. They're kept at home. There are also alternative sex and marriage forms. In breakaway communities with Mormon roots, the prestigious males, those with land or authority, marry the majority of the young women, and they force all the other men to either leave or look elsewhere for mates. And of course, we've seen this throughout the series. The history repeats itself over and over and over again. Um, And then the last form of desert patriarchy is circumscription, which we talked about. This occurs when the immigration of dissatisfied factions is blocked by features of the physical or social environment. So the tight-knit social structures of communities combined with the elements of the land may be Heat, drought, poor soil, um, dangerous predators, dangerous mountains, no roads. It's hard to travel. It really isolates. It makes it difficult for members, especially women, to leave. Uh, When she was in Chihuahua, she said that most people preferred to stay in Chihuahua in spite of the difficulties rather than face ostracism or rejection in the larger society. So... When we think about the Liberian group, when we think about the poverty that you know maybe Irene Spencer talks about in living in this this isolated desert, it's not like she could just leave right because the land was hard enough, and um, they're told stories about the outside world, and they have no life skills that they that that are really applicable in the outside world so even though the suffering is great, their options are very limited, so it's an extreme source of privilege for people to say, why don't you leave? And so in a lot of these communities that still exist, even in the developed world, even in Utah, for example, in small towns, it's not as easy to leave as you think that it would be. So now I'm going to play the clip from my interview with Janet that we are able to salvage. And again, I apologize for the audio quality, but here I am asking her about groups of the AUB She spent the majority of her time with um, AUB members, and she talks a lot about modern Mormon women, modern Mormon fundamentalist women.
2: Yeah, so we've had some um, audio trouble, so... Can you answer the question about what would be the difference between just having a good friend versus Um
1: I think they're so similar, those cases. I remember living in a, a similar situation as yourself, Lindsay, where you were relying on, you know, people from your community. I relied on my sister. I relied on um, a beautiful friend of mine um, from my ward there on 10th Avenue, and we, you know, swapped. We, we traded off. That allowed me to actually um, get my doctorate finished. But the difference is, is these women who are linked to each other because they share this husband have been polished in a way through adversity and difficulty that, that actually makes some of their relationships much stronger. Now, not everyone is going to have that effect. Some people fragment and the jealousies are too much and the, the isolation is difficult. But others actually grow from that experience. Um, they also have this, um, uh, uh, situation where they are married through the law of Sarah, which means that a new wife puts her hand in the holy grasp on the hand of the, um, the first wife if she wants to marry uh, that woman's husband. And that wife gives her permission and they are linked together in marriage for all eternity. So that's a bond that maybe you and your neighbor don't have. Um, the other bond is the knowledge of what they are sharing and how they are raising their children is much more intense because the, their children have a single father. And so there is genetic uh, relationships that their children have and that their sister wives have a similar ideology that they're working off in order to socialize each other's children they're sharing space they're sharing their husband sexually all of these are much more intense than what you might be experiencing with your neighbor so that when there is that uh network that's built it's it's um multifaceted um and there's been a study i, I in my one of my chapters on the politics of polygamy, I talk about the multifaceted network t- ties using graph theory of women with each other, and it is incredible, and in some cases, it may involve a sexual experience, although that's rare, with uh, each other, with the co-wives.
2: This is like something that you've been doing more work on lately. In fact, you wrote a or sorry, a fictional novel about this. That's
1: character. right. Of uh, two women, I'm try- still trying to find a way to get that published. <laughs> two women who fall in love with each other while they're still married, where they're married to the same man.
2: So I and, love uh, this because in Polly Kelly, Paula Kelly Harlene's book, *The Pilgrim's Wife Writing Club*, as well as Levina Fielding Anderson's work, they talk about there's this. Um, Connection, there's a particular connection, a woman who is far more in love with her sister wife than she ever is and her husband. And I do think that you're spot on with your work here. I mean, this is sort of controversial, not something we talk about, but I do think it did. I I think you called it, what, clandestine lesbianism? Is that correct? Yeah,
1: I I think that, uh, you know, I call it clandestine because formally it's not allowed. You know, homosexuality is frowned on by the Mormon. Um Doctrine, so what you you're seeing is you know kind of an underground movement, and it actually is not new to contemporary fundamentalism. it existed in the eighteen hundreds um in fact, D Michael Quinn wrote about this, and I also have uh, a section in my book about it where I talk about some of the you know uh, I think her name was Evangeline Wells and some of these other women who were part of the original exponent in the late 1800s. They met occasionally and there was a lot of freedom there to express love between two women and that it wasn't considered to be anything amoral. It wasn't considered to be inappropriate. It was, you know, a relaxed quasi lesbian outlet and, um, the handful of cases of women who've told me their story had, you know, a kind of a, a natural progression to lesbianism because of the following factors. Their husband was rarely at home, number one, which meant that they had to provide this interdependent network with each other. And the third component is they had an emotional and a spiritual relationship prior to the sexual one that they had already been sharing um, with a belief system and a, an emotive a sharing that was e- extraordinary. And through the necessity of being left on their own, you know, they found comfort in each other's arms.
2: I understand quite well what the LDS stance on homosexuality is, but how have fundamentalists grappled with this idea? Because, you know, on the frontier it really wasn't an idea that they had to grapple with. We do know that, you know, Peter Joseph Smith was excommunicated for homosexuality. Uh It was started to become more on the radar, radar in the 20th century, but how are fundamentalists dealing with this?
1: Formally, fundamentalists are more extremely against homosexuality than the mainstream church, formally. So that means would... that from the pulpit, bear with me, from the pulpit, these things are going to be especially um, two men together, especially two men together because of the stigma of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. But um, where you see these progressive polygamists coming out uh, uh, as independents away from these formalized groups, they are um, in favor of gay marriage. Cody Brown and his family, Brady Williams and his family, My Five Wives tele- televised program. These have all um, endorsed the uh, legalization of gay marriage.
2: Yes, because they're, um, there's implications for them as well, right? At least that's what they're hoping.
1: I think that the the connection between the legal recognition of gay marriage and the legal recognition of polyforms of marriage are extremely tied together you know so when um the lawrence versus texas 2003 case came out uh, decriminalizing sodomy what you're seeing is a, a doorway which will allow for more alternative sexual sexual practices to be uh, ad- adopted and the media plays a huge role in that. more prime time shows about gays and lesbians lead to uh legal acceptance likewise you know since um big love and sister wives my five wives polygamy u s a all of these programs come out, you're seeing that um the the mainstream um u s viewership are seeing polygamy as um n- not normal but the that it can be a viable option in that basically these people who are in poly families have the same goals and um, activities as any monogamous family. They're trying to pay their bills. They're trying to raise their children. They're trying to work out relationship issues, you know? And so there's a lot to see. It, 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 trying, it, it sort of makes uh, these families seem um, normal. And so they so can be more I, accepted. I've been
2: reading a lot of blogs um, from fundamentalists or you know sister wife blogs or people mm-hmm. watching this, and one of the biggest criticisms that they have, they say that you know this is sister wife, for example, or um, big love. Well, not even big love. They're they're saying that this is not an accurate representation of what polygamy is really like. Do you do you feel like that's an unfair <laughs> criticism?
1: I think big love is extraordinarily uh, um, accurate, and I think that the people who look at it and and pick out little things are going to be those who say, um, well, this isn't, representative of my experience in polygamy. But what Big Love does is it represents a lot of different stories. So, you know, the Hendrickson's family are basically leaving the, the major group, which is supposed to be the FLDS group. And the FLDS group is, um, represented to be pretty accurate. You know, they're, they're cloistered, they're isolated, there's, uh, uh, everything depends on what the prophet deems to be correct and everyone follows that rigorously and then when Bill and his wives leave that group they, they provide a more independent progressive lifestyle for their families and that there are jealousies and that there are all problems. The only inaccuracy that I found with that program was that it looks like Bill's getting a lot of sex and that's just not <laughs> really accurate. It's HBO.
2: Really? I am interested in that. No. HBO is
1: always going to parade, you know, the big deal about, you know, him going from one bedroom to another or, or that he's right. always having sex and popping Viagra. There's not really that much sex going on because what you've got Would is... Is compare
2: compared to a monogamous family?
1: Um, I think polygamous women are getting less sex than monogamous women, and this has been studied by Stephen Johansson, one of my colleagues. I can send you the study if you'd like. Polygamy is not um, great for, I mean, of course, for the man, you know, he's going to have sexual variety and he's going to be busy, Uh, but um, the idea that, that he's getting sex all the time is not accurate and that that he's continually popping viagra i mean there's some viagra use yeah it makes sense if you're an older man and you've got younger wives but it's not um you know people don't really go into it for all of uh, the idea that they're going to have constant sex what happens is when you have women living together even in close proximity of housing um not not even being in the same house but close proximity you're going to get menstrual synchrony which means that they're going to ovulate at the same time, which means all women have their periods at the same time, or that they're going to be, um, you know, uh, lactating at the same time, you know. So for a man to think, like in the show, that he's just going to hop from one easy sexual experience to another, it doesn't work that way. And there's other things that happen. In monogamy, you don't do that. So In polygamy, you don't do it either.
2: Yeah, so have you read Brady Udall's book, The Woman Polygamist? No, I haven't. So he, he wrote it it's a fictional novel but he has a Mormon background as well. And his his premise is basically about a polygamous man who has sort of who is deeply, deeply lonely even though he is surrounded by these mm-hmm. wives and mm-hmm. so I think it's a fascinating idea and I'm always pointing my listeners to the fact that, you know, we like to think of polygamy being a way to fulfill men's lust because that is where mm-hmm. some of the rhetoric lies. Right. But that is not... I mean, polygamy has been very difficult on men. How have you seen yeah. polygamy be difficult for men? Yeah, I've, I've
1: written about it in my book, and um, there's several different issues. It can be very lonely. I remember seeing one man who was isolated um, from his household because he didn't have a space, you know, Um All the women had their bedrooms, and then there was the living room, but he didn't have a place where he just could go to unwind. So he stayed in his car for hours after work, reading Louis L'Amour books, just not wanting to go into the house, because the minute he walks in the door, there's going to be demands on him from his many children and his many wives. Now, this is, you know, some some people are shaking their head. Well, this is his bed. Now he's got to sleep in it, (laughs) literally. But, you know, if he believes that this is the way... the the religious way for him to live, he's got to deal with that. He's a vagabond going from house to house. And so there is some you know loneliness and who, has, who is he going to talk to about the difficulties that he's having with his wives because you know you're not allowed to do that in the priesthood you don't you can't talk to one wife about the other wives that's not allowed because that's going to foster you know jealousies and favoritism so he's kind of a lonely dude the other uh, really uh, abusive part of polygamy for young men is that they can be easily ousted in any group, particularly the Warren Jeffs L D S group where he got rid of hundreds of young men and he made the statement that, oh, they were listening to devil's music or, oh, they were not honoring their priesthoods or whatever. But literally, you get rid of the competition. You get rid of these young men calling them rogue males or whatever. And then there are more women for the brethren, the elite brethren to marry. And that's what's required in a successful polygamist community. You have to figure out a way to alienate the young men. And one of the additional ways is fierce competition for jobs. If you've got 15 young men born into one patriarch's family, then who are who are the ones that are going to get the stewardship? Um, who are the ones that are going to be able to work with the, their old man and, and build up the industry? Well, usually it's the eldest of the first and second wives. The others are going to be alienated, and they may take up alcohol, they may go back into the mainstream, they may, you know, what do these rogue males do? You know, they might have some serious psychological and um, substance abuse issues.
0: So
2: we've talked about this a little bit on some of our previous episodes, the Lost Boys and things like that. Uh uh I'm always interested in how this compares. You know, I, I grew up sort of worshiping my pioneer ancestors, it's very difficult for me to, to let those narratives go. And we mm-hmm. know that Brigham Young had some of this rhetoric towards competition with males, Heber Kimball. Uh, there's some mm-hmm. terrible stories of Bishop born Snow in southern Utah with the castrations we've also talked about. Do you think that it's fair or do you think it's dangerous or what are your opinions on conflating modern day stories with our frontier stories? How accurate and Synonymities that
1: those experiences are. I think the comparison is very useful, and I, I've enjoyed, you know, reading um, at the Red Center some of the journals and and uh, diaries of those pioneer women and, and men who had to deal with such um <laughs> difficulty, you know, at how to carve out a surviving existence in a very difficult desert environment. And my own ancestors are, you know, I marvel at those narratives. And, and yet, you know, when you look at the, the contemporary groups that are also in Mexico, in the desert, in the mountains, they they have similar challenges that that cause them to work together in a collaborative uh movement and they that enhances their religious solidarity, it enhances their value system, and they become very tight-knit-knit, so it's very favorable. So there's some similarities. Um, On the other hand, (laughs) now we've got the modern day. So when you're looking at these contemporary progressive polygamists, they're bringing into it a lot more New Age concepts, maybe even going into Eastern mysticism, bringing into Native American ideologies. Um, I know that uh, Brady Williams and his family have converted to Buddhism. They're also um, college-educated women and although that was true for some of the wives in the 18th century, most, most of, or excuse me, 19th century, most of those women were not educated and they were much more isolated than these modern day polygamists. Um, I can just count a few. Um, one of my own ancestors, Martha Hughes Cannon, who married my great-great-grandfather, Angus, she was the first U.S. senator, a female who was the first U.S. senator, so she was obviously one that was educated, but... So that's one difference. The um the opportunity for education and career, um, and high technology. You know, rather than having to wash your clothes by hand, you've got the washing machine. So there's opportunity through polygamy for much more leisure for women if you know, if you have a a, a collaborative network that works for you.
2: Do the modern fundamentalists deal with things that uh regular mormon women deal with depression, anxiety, plastic surgery and you know, eating disorders and all of those kind of things.
1: I don't I don't know uh, about that. I when I lived with the all red group, it seemed like there were other things they were dealing with. Uh, certainly depression was um one of those things, but as far as um eating disorders and uh the need to live up to an ideal presented on TV, they didn't have TVs. <laughs> they didn't focus on that modern world. They were a bit removed by choice, living off the grid. And, you know, occasionally uh, some of the wives would go into Hamilton or Missoula for work. But, you know, most households that I was living in, they didn't really focus on TV that much. And, and they prided themselves from being outside of that movement. Um, have you ever seen that movie, The Village? Um, that a remarkable movie where this culture chooses to live off the grid so that they can get away from all that evil. <laughs> well, this is what the All Red Group uh, Montana community was like for me. You know, it was removal from that outside world. So some of those sources of malaise that come from watching advertisements or body image issues, I didn't see that as a, a problem. Um, many of them had simply, um, other things on their mind, like you know um getting the crop in or um um grinding wheat or educating the children i mean there there there's a lot to do there was a lot of work to be done but and they instead still have of the sort of um,
2: pressure like of the the sort of nineteen fifties ideal right I mean did you see that this competition through material culture through their their cooking through their their housekeeping things like that?
1: Yeah, always competition among the wives in one way or another, but some got over it so that it was more like a joke, and some let it create schism and destroy their families. And one of the factors contributing to jealousies about competitions and all that is if the husband feeds into that competition. You know, leaving little comments like, well, like, Sarah doesn't do that, or Sally sure made a good soup last night, <laughs> or, oh, you know, I didn't have this problem with Alice. You know, and that is just really bad form. But if the um, patriarch, if the husband is smart and he just stays away from that action, then other competitions among wives will they'll be worked out among them. In some cases, personalities clash and you never get over it. But in many cases, after the first couple of years, you polish your relationships and you smooth out these jealousies if you have equal access to resources. Meaning, if the, if the husband is spending equal time with each wife and that he, he's also remembering birthdays and anniversaries and he spends equal time with the children and he's not using favoritism. That's what kills a family. There's a lot of
2: pressure to put on the husband as well. Yeah,
1: it is. <laughs> Therefore, if you don't have a good memory, don't marry more than one wife.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of your article in Mixed Blessings. I'm trying to think if it, it was about networking. I don't have the title right in front mm-hmm. of me, but I thought that that was such a compelling, compelling article where you talk about this sort of networking, and I, I related to that as a Mormon woman because there's there's so many similarities that I saw within sort of this Relief Society sort of Zion-building mm-hmm. ideal. And that's how I like to think of my pioneer ancestors. Mm-hmm. But I know that there were so much private heartaches. Um, and before I let you go, I just want you to, to speak on what some of the women are doing to overcome those heartaches or maybe those jealousies. Or is, is there any hope for them? Because I know that they many fundamentalists sort of resist therapy and professional health treatment. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that is a big issue. I think one of the growing professions is going to be how to manage poly relationships. And in fact, I went to this conference where there were several, um in Berkeley, of course, it would be this way, because they're into poly big time, but <laughs> there were several practitioners who were specializing in how to manage these jealousies. And one of the things was through compersion, which is a new word, compersion, means that you've got to work on empathy. And it is the hardest thing in the world. But Mormon fundamentalist women have been doing this for decades. Um, and it is basically extending empathy and love to your uh, co-wife when she's with your husband. So that they can have a good experience. And sometimes that means you might give up your night, especially if that co-wife wants to get pregnant. So I think that Mormon fundamentalist women have been doing this a lot longer than these, um, more, uh, um, Berkeley-esque, uh, poly forms. And compersion, again, is empathy towards your partner when he's with another partner. And that you, you have to back out of that so there's less ownership. It's a more cooperative communal aspect of marriage and yet you, you know you still have this Victorian dyadic sense that oh you're mine for now but then you've got to back off and and those women who are able to manage that and and get that kind of counseling with each other benefit but we do need more practitioners more um uh therapists and counselors who are able to help advise on the poly front i think that would be enormously beneficial because uh, you know it's not just polygyny and polyandry, but we've got polyamory, multiple love that is very common in this 21st century. And so I think that we need to start schooling um, students in psychology into that direction. It'd be very helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We see a lot of this sort of experimentation in the ex-born community, you know, people Mm -hmm. that feel like they got married too young and want to open up their marriage. And I've yet to see it be successful as far as keeping the original marriage together, if that's how you measure success, but um, it definitely is, I think, something that is emerging.
1: (laughs) One thing that we're learning in modern feminism, Lindsay, is that there are many faces of feminism. And, you know, you say ex-Mormon, well, what if there's a Mormon poly front, you know, uh, within the you know maybe it's underground maybe it's unknown but there are so many faces of mormonism <laughs> so many faces Absolutely. of uh mormon feminism so it could be monogamy it could be poly it could be asexual it could be um transgender it could be lesbian um so you know, th- these are the realities of the various spaces. And, and you had asked the question, maybe we could just close with this, that, you're, you know, many feminists are skeptical of the poly world, and I don't blame them. It's not for everyone. But to be truly feminist, like Brooke Adams once said, and this is uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, a reporter that I respect, you know, if we discount one woman's experience as invalid, then we are not really feminists. So, we have to acknowledge that there is the possibility of various pathways to feminism, whether or not we personally would adopt it.
2: And what so about the idea of informed consent? And Because I, you know, that's how I started this out with, but I've heard a lot of criticism leveled against me, even, you know, claiming the title of Mormon feminist, that it's Stockholm Syndrome. I think that's the most uh-huh. prominent one. But what about the idea of. Informed consent, because I, as a feminist woman, support women with informed choices. Of course, informed is subjective, but uh, do you think that it's enabling or maybe complicit if we if we say that we're going to support the you know views of women to do harm?
1: I think I think that consent is always something to to support and. Um, to admonish, you know, full adult consent. And adult is a question, where does adulthood begin? But it's very dangerous to suggest that one woman is brainwashed and then not suggest that about yourself. Are you not also brainwashed? Were you not also socialized into a kind of a thinking mode that is, um you know, restrictive <laughs> and that's how you live right. your life were, you, were not your parents molding you through a series of positive and negative reinforcements to direct you on your certain path is that not brainwashing so it's it's kind of dangerous to say that certain forms are brainwashing and not others we've got to be a little bit more culturally relative about that and say that The American female, the modern mainstream American female is totally brainwashed as well. She's taught from age 11 that her body defines her
2: from advertisements,
1: from the way that people treat, you know, um, women. Like You know, seeing on TV pundits who are saying about Hillary Clinton, uh, not so much what she says about her policies of the Middle East, but that she's got a muffin top. You
2: know I mean? Right. So, well,
1: are we not <laughs> yeah, all brainwashed?
2: So <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think that that's such an important thing to remember. And I really appreciate you. Okay, leaving us. My pleasure. That, thank you so much for coming on and um, I'm going to point everyone to your work. Is there anything else that you want to any projects you want to promote? Yeah,
1: I really want to just um, take a, a, a minute to describe this new work I mentioned called The Polygamy Question and what it is is it's a group of scholars and lawyers from all over the United States and Canada who have joined me at various international conferences in Florence and Brandeis and uh, Quebec, and what we're doing is trying to balance out the argument, the discussion about whether or not polygamy per se is harmful. And the second thing is, what are we going to do about it legally? Are we going to admonish de- full decriminalization, full legal recognition, or maintaining the ban? So, these are various scholastic voices coming from multidisciplines, and again, it'll come out in a few months, Um Published by uh, Utah State University Press.
2: Oh, awesome! I'm
0: excited. You'll have to keep me in the loop when it comes out. Will do. Now, one thing that Janet and I didn't discuss because of limited time was the decriminalization of polygamy, and I want to t- sort of talk about what she talks about in a lot of her research because her feelings really echo mine. It's an important thing to talk about. It's been happening. There's a lot of um, processes that are in order at least in 2015, that have happened um, and that will continue to happen to possibly even legalize polygamy in the future. And it's a controversial thing, and I've talked to many Mormon LDS women who are very much opposed to it because they, they find the practice of polygamy so deplorable. They don't want it legalized. They want it just to go away. Let me tell you what Janet says. She says quote in my research, I witnessed this variability which caused me to question the criminalization of poly Love and pursue arguments in favor of legal recognition. First, criminalization pushes a practice further underground, exactly where potential abu- abuses are likely to occur. If the fear of incarceration were removed. Polygamists would be freer to live in the mainstream where women and children would have access to counseling, education, and opportunities for economic and emotional autonomy. This is what this is one of my biggest arguments for decriminalization is because the reason why polygamy has been associated with abuse so much is because and and I think we should draw these same parallels to, uh, you know, frontier Mormonism. In in some ways, because things have become so secretive, because it's become so illegal, there's really no mechanism for people to report abuse. There's really no uh, way for people who are being abused to get help. So if you are in a community and you're told to fear the authorities, that the government is the enemy, and in some cases the government is the devil, you have no way to report your abuse because, of course... Do you stay with your abuser or do you go talk to the devil for help? It's a really it's a really messed up dynamic. And I think my theory, and this is just a theory, is that in the Utah period when polygamy was lived quite openly, it was probably a healthy healthier community. Of course there was fear, a larger fear from the outside government, but because they were so protected and isolated and were able to hold off a lot of um, the Gentiles, if you will, and were able to escape prosecution for a long time, there was probably um, in some ways a healthier community. Now, of course, in the 19th century, abuse wasn't really dealt with. They didn't have the language for abuse and for sexual assault and sexual harassment and all of those kind of things. But it's the secrecy that sort of decays this. And so I suspect that once it became, you know, in the 1870s, 1880s and 1890s, we really see things start to, Sour, in my opinion, and um, Mormon fundamentalism sort of struggles with this because they don't have access to reporting. Here's what Janet says: "Quote, criminalization also stigmatizes poly families in the media, local neighbors, at school, and the general public. Legal recognition would legitimize polygamy as a faith-based lifestyle to neighbors, employers, and the state, and this would bring wellness that polygamy." would be religiously sanctioned. It would serve Mormon fundamentalists. If plural marriages were to become legal contracts between consenting adults, the stigma would be diminished, even in Orthodox Mormon communities that are commanded to follow civil law. Polygamists could come out to their neighbors and coworkers without fear of arrest being fired or ostracized. They would be able to show affection to their wives in public and enjoy meeting with them in parks, at school, or at the mall without having to continually watch for the police or a man in a dark suit with sunglasses. Criminalization actually ensures that polygamy goes unmonitored under the laissez-faire enforcement currently used by Arizona and Utah. It also restricts the access of vulnerable individuals to social and economic support. If polygamy were to be legalized, spiritual wives would be transformed into legal wives and thus would gain access to their husbands and co-wives work related health benefits and pensions, hospital visiting rights and life insurance. And um, then of course she goes on to talk about Cody Brown and his benefits and things like that. And she draws a lot of parallels to things that we see happening in the marriage debate when it comes to gay marriage. And of course she was writing this before Utah was seriously considering decriminalization, but, um, this is, these were the arguments she was making. She says, quote, most of the world's cultures practice polygamy representing a viable option for many women with legal recognition, criminal sanctions against these women would be removed and the civil law would be enlarged to include the poly family. If there is no abuse, fraud, or underage marriage, polygamy should be legally recognized, just as a gay-lesbian marriage and serial monogamy are legalized. Americans yearn for creative panoply of options, preferring families they choose over families thrust on them because of tradition or law. With legalization, women could benefit from the greater educational and occupational opportunities in the outside world. They could learn to drive and hold legal driver's licenses, They could get high school diplomas and attend college and vocational schools and apply for work that best matches their skills without the risk of being fired. Furthermore, anti-polygamy laws are difficult to enforce. Not a single polygamist was criminally prosecuted in the United States from the 1950s to 2001, and in Canada there have been no convictions against polygamy since 1906. Duke lawyer Emily Duncan summarizes the many obstacles to prosecution. Quote, you can ask family members to testify against each other, or children are taught to fear and distrust a lot, or there is no paper trail for births or unlawful marriages, or it is nearly impossible to obtain accurate evidence about abuse or about what jurisdiction perpetrators should be prosecuted in, or local police and doctors in the fundamentalist communities often aid and abet residents engaged in criminal activity and law enforcement and political officials are concerned about acting too aggressively against a practice some see as protecting religious activity, and many busy prosecutors place greater focus on more serial offenses, ignoring polygamy, and many Mormon law enforcement officials are simply unwilling to charge consenting adults for the religious beliefs that their Mormon ancestors shared. Legal recognition allows greater regulation of the practice. It would focus on the pursuit of criminal actions of individuals, such as child marriage and incest, not the culture itself. The rights versus actions argument of Reynolds versus the United States will be refuted. Rather, polygamy would be legitimized as a right, and abusive actions often associated with polygamy would be illegal regardless of their religious foundation, including family actions against minors. And these are some of the arguments that you see in a lot of activism. This is an argument happening in um, trafficking. There's there's different in prostitution ideas of you know criminalizing it or decriminalizing it or um, maybe just sort of enforcing and regulating it. Uh, this is a this is a very controversial thing. But in this particular case, when it happens to do with polygamy, I stand with Janet Benyon. I do think that decriminalization has and is helping bring polygamy out of the shadows, and uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Janet Bennion calls polygamy our world's next marriage rights frontier, and she claims that consenting adults should be able to do what consenting adults want to do. And uh, she is going to, I'm sure, be coming out with a lot more interesting research, so I'm going to be linking to all of that. But I would recommend starting out with Desert Patriarchy. You can download it online. You can pay a price for the PDF and download it, download it online or buy it on Amazon. And Polygamy in Primetime is another book that was really, really popular. So uh, thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed another episode of the Feminist Modern and podcast here with Polygamy.